we're going to be uh, continuing the Gospel of John. If you don't have one of these books, we've got some over there, and you can grab one. It's just the Gospel of John, right? And we're in chapter 4, so uh, you can grab one of these, or if uh, you don't have a Bible with you, whatever, you can grab one of these, hard-backed black one in the seat in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, or you know someone who doesn't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Take it and give it to someone, and say, hey, we're reading about Jesus, the most controversial figure in history that changes everything. You should come read about him with us. That's what we're doing. So, uh, in the weeks past, we've gone through several things, and John kind of has a, a theme that he's circling, and, and we're going to wrestle with that. We heard from uh, Nathan and Jimmy the last few weeks. Uh, my family's on vacation, which was really great. Thanks for asking. It was wonderful. And, uh, and so here we are, back in John, and there's a whole lot to cover. Uh, it, it's tough when you walk into things like this. You guys know me. Like It's like, oh, look at this. It's this big. Everything's connected. And we're trying to dwindle down to, to a smaller aspect of this, this small story that John includes right after the woman at the well. And if you're with us, you know, you've, you've heard us. We spent about three, maybe four weeks, depending on how you measure it. I mentioned the woman at the well one week, so Jimmy said that it was four weeks, whatever. I, I don't know. It was not really four weeks, but whatever. We spent some time with the woman at the well because it's a big story. It's kind of a turning point for John. And this story kind of caps this moment of like, what's happening here? And it says, hey, this is the second miracle. Um, normally, we have uh, someone come up and read, and uh, Jimmy uh, reminded me on Friday, hey, let's make sure we do that. And I didn't, forgot. So I'm going to read it to you right now. Open to John 4, starting in verse 46. John 4, 46. This is the word of the Lord. So he came again to Canaan, Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them, uh, he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Father, we pray that you would help us with our unbelief, help us with our doubt, and, and unearth to us what you want us to know by the power of your spirit, that we would understand concepts like belief, faith, trust that, that Jesus is calling us to. May your spirit guide us, give us ears to hear take away any distraction. I pray against any evil, anything that could be, be a foothold of the devil, anything that, that evil, the, the world, the flesh could be doing to distract us from what you want. And I pray that your spirit, your light, your truth would shine through. Thank you for your love for us. May we believe in your love. Amen. Tim Keller says, it is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. It is not the strength of your faith but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a small branch. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a uh, small branch. Uh, so it's not the, uh, 
not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith. So as we go through John, John kind of gave us uh, his concluding statement. We'll get there eventually, but in John 20, 30 through 31, it says, Now he did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. Everything you read in John, everything we're reading every week, this is why it's read. This is why it's here for you, church. It's survived this long. God wants to talk to you. What's God trying to say to you? Boom, here it comes. These things are written. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So this morning, we're going to unpack this story. We're going to do that first. Then we're going to talk about knowledge and faith, because they have an inseparable relationship. We're going to talk about knowledge and faith. We're going to talk about doubt. And then we're going to talk about practicing faith, trust, belief in God. Talk about practicing that. So first, we're going to unpack the story. Faith and knowledge, doubt, practicing faith, trust. So let's look at the story. So he, Jesus, came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water to wine. John wants you to remember, hey, you remember this place? This is where the wedding feast happened. We did a whole sermon on that. You can go and listen to it. We did two sermons on it, actually. And we unpacked all the geekery there, all the things going on in the Bible and all the connections. Uh, it's a really powerful story and, and how the Hebrews would have read that. And John wants you to know here, hey, you remember that place? We're back. That's the place. That's the context for the situation. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. John wants us to remember, this is where he turned water to wine, and now there's an official. And, I, you know, I've got this later in my notes, but I, I want us to catch what's going on here. There's a flow that's happening. Jesus hits the scene in John chapter 1, and John the Baptist, the weird guy, believes in him. That's what happens. There's this weird outsider who believes and is empowered and goes out to declare the message. And then there's some people some disciples that start believing in him. You start seeing Jesus calling people to follow him. And we talked about discipleship, right, in Talmudim's and how these people had already been passed over. Um, they'd already been forgotten about in their Jewish culture as far as becoming a disciple. And then Jesus, the actual Messiah, welcomes them in. And John wants us to walk in that tension. And then you go to the wedding at Cana and the disciples believe, right? But then you have this weird tension of Jesus versus the Jewish leaders in the temple. And, and they're just, they have questions. They're tense, right? Jesus with Nicodemus, someone who certainly should get it. An expert in the Bible. And Jesus is going back and forth with him. And Nicodemus is like, how can this be? How can this be? How can this be? He doesn't get it. He can't quite get it. And then all of a sudden we're in, in a story of Samaritans. Nathan did a great job unpacking all the tension there, the racial tension, the, the historical tension. Like these people should be out. They certainly shouldn't get the Messiah. And then Jesus goes to this Samaritan woman who's clearly outside of the realm of honor, of, of being special. She's nothing in that culture. And then he reveals himself to her, and she believes. And because of her faith, right, this Samaritan that's outside, so let's go over here, Samaritans, way outside. Then even outside of that, the female woman, Samaritan, woman at the well, she believes. And then all of this, a lot of this city, it says more because of her belief, come believe. Now we have an official, and so we're going way over here now. Sorry I'm off camera, they'll get over it. Hey, we're so far over here, these people don't get the Messiah. And the way this is worded is intentionally vague because John wants you to wonder what sort of authority 
is outside of all of these caste systems. They have authority. Maybe it's someone in Herod's, you know, regimen or whatever. Um, but all we know is that it's an official. The, the Greek word there is pretty vague. It's just of royalty. It's a royal official. Uh, the actual Greek word looks kind of like the word basilisk, if you know what that is, but that's not the word, but that's what it reminds me of. Anyway, so you see that, and I even marked that out in my notes. Don't mention that. I did anyway. You're welcome. Um, but you see, it's a royal official, right? And that's all we know. Why is it so vague? I think John wants to pull you in to say, hey, even the authority figures of the day, even the people who should have power and authority over this, all people who should know, who should be above all of this Jewish stuff, they've arrived. They're above. They're culturally, socially, financially above. They still need something. There's still something being missed here. And they don't even need to be named. We don't even need to call them a centurion. We don't need to give them a name. It's just an unknown official, someone out there who has authority. You see what John's doing? He's pulling you in to say, hey, there's something going on here. This man, though he's powerful, is powerless, fearing that his son will die. Seemingly nobody else has been able to help him. He hears of Jesus, and in desperation, he says, I, I got to find this guy. I got to figure out what's going on. And here's Jesus' response, and I, I don't want to take a ton of time in this. We could just preach a sermon on Jesus' first response, but we're going to go through this quickly. Verse 48. So Jesus says to the man, oh, I'm really sorry. Your son's sick. That's a bummer. Let's talk about it. No. That's what we want to hear, right? We want, we want the counseling Jesus that like lay back. Tell me about your mother. Like, no, no, no. Jesus, so quickly. I think it's funny. Like, John, why did John, like, was there more conversation here? We don't know. But this is what John wants you to think about. This is the story that God's given you. Jesus' response, unless y'all, that's a Greek word, it's plural. So it's not you. Unless you, idiot man who's coming to talk to me. No, no, no. Don't miss that. That's, that's not kind. That's unloving. That's not who Jesus is. Jesus just laments, Unless y'all, unless all y'all see signs and wonders, all y'all will not believe. That's Jesus' initial response. What is it? Is this a rebuke? Is this a factual statement? Both? We, we don't know. It seems kind of like a rebuke. Why? Take a step back. So we just had the Samaritans be visited. And in John 4, 41, the Samaritans was, how did, talk with me, how did the Samaritans, the city, Sychar, how did they come to hear about Jesus? The woman at the well. That's how they came. You remember that? Okay. And, and did Jesus do some poof miracle sign for her? Now the whole well is wine. Drink up, gal. No. He just, he talks and reveals himself. And she believes. And she goes and tells, hey, come see the one who, knew, who knows me who knows me, who really knows me. And then they believe, John 4, 41, because of his words, many more became believers because of his words. Now, a few verses later, John 4, 48, unless y'all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. There's something about this particular region or just in general we can be thinking about that, that there's this balance of there are people who are believing Jesus and his word by the power of his spirit, what he's offering, and there are people who are like, I need more. I need you to prove it. I need something else. And Jesus seems to just be lamenting, not so much just at this guy, but at Galileans in general. Because remember, he was already here. John mentioned he was here. What happened last time he was here? Water and wine, right? He already did a sign. And so Jesus has this lament of like, Jesus is brilliant. He knows everything. He knows this guy comes to him because this guy was in the area. And this guy had heard of Jesus who heals. This guy wasn't just like, let me roll the dice and find the next random Jewish poor guy. No, he had heard of Jesus. He heard about water to wine. He heard about his claims. So he goes to him and Jesus laments in this sort of like, man, I, I'm envisioning a time where people trust in my word. And it takes us back to John 1.1. In the beginning was the 
word. There's something here about Jesus' power. Not literally, we in the West, we want to break down this equation. And we want, hey, spoken word. Literally, Jesus' word. If I say the right words at the right time, Jesus' words, I quote this scripture, take two verses, call me in the morning, I got it. That's not the point. The word Jesus, who he is, they believe in him. Not without proof, what do you need? Proof, what do you need? Proof, what do you need? Trying to get more. Prove it, Jesus, let's go. Jesus envisions, man, people just believe in who I am, what I've said in me. They believe in me. And I understand, I hear your doubt in that, and I hear the tension, like, what about, what about? That's the point. John wants you to have that tension, because the emphasis is on the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith, not the equation of your faith. The emphasis is on Jesus. We could stop the sermon there, but we're going to keep going. And so, uh, Jesus is longing for this. And it's so, you know, it's so powerful that even amongst this story, John, if we go back and read, we have both so far. We're reading this. Think about our vantage point. So John's writing this so that you'll believe. Now, think about this. Thousands of years later, we're reading this, and we get to read the signs and read the word. For God so loved the world that he gave Jesus, gave his own only son, that whoever believes in him won't die, but they'll have eternal life. And as we read this, we're reading the story of the one who did signs and the one whose words were remained true. They connected everything. This is why we say Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. Yeah. Try again. That's okay. Jesus is everything. This is why, because everything in Scripture comes to this point. Last year, we read the whole Bible. We said, hey, the Bible's one unified story that points to King Jesus. This is where it is. Jesus is bringing all these things, whether you, you have faith, doubt, the measurement of faith, what do I do with this, all these tensions. Now, see, Jesus is everything. He's the object. He's what we look to. Verse 49, the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus, it's like this guy's like, I don't, I don't want a theological, I don't, okay, sure, people want signs. My son's dying. Messiah, like that's kind of where he's at. He's like, listen, my son's dying. I think that's interesting. I think it's interesting that you see his persistence, his tension. He's like, hey, I'm going to keep pleading to Jesus because this is really all I have because Jesus is everything. He says, sir, come down before my son dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. This man's persistent, seemingly desperate. His money, his power, social status, nothing Nothing is saving him and his family from this fall of creation, this, this situation. Everyone's going to die. People get sick and die. The body breaks down. Nothing can stop that. And there's no social status, no money, no power. Nothing this guy can do about it. And he stands before Jesus, the Word, the one who was from the beginning, the only one who can save. Life, as John has already told us, Jesus is the life. He stands before him and says, I've got nothing. My son, that's it. I believe that you can do so. I, this is it. You're, you're what I'm banking on here. Come. And Jesus says, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. We want to be careful when we talk about these things. I just want to have a quick aside here. This is my quick aside standing spot. Um, please don't hear anyone here, shepherd, that if you do this, then this. No one here is trying to tell you because you didn't have enough faith, grandma died. No, no one's here to tell you that because that's stupid. Who can measure that? Who can put that on you? Right? No one here is trying to say, hey, uh, please don't go see your doctor about the pain in your leg because Jesus can heal you. That would be foolish. 
because there are characters in the Bible who are doctors that God honors. They actually had them write parts of the New Testament. Like, like God clearly is okay with doctors. The, the New Testament says to uh, pour oil and pray over people. Like, there's a medicinal aspect and a prayer aspect. Like, there's both. So, so, so don't ever hear this like, hey, just have more faith, man. Don't go see the doctor. Please, go see your counselor. Please, take the pills that, that God has put in your life to help the medications for, for mental disorders and mental illness, all those things. None of those things are against what God has put in your life. That's not the point. The point is that whatever we're doing, we're putting faith in Jesus. Because whatever healing is coming about to you, that James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. There's no shifting shadow. And so if God chooses to heal you because uh, the elders anoint you with oil and, and pray over you, as Scripture says, the shepherd's here, put oil on you, pray over you, and, and you're healed, praise God. If God heals you by going to a doctor and, and through some miraculous surgery, then you're healed, praise God. If God heals you because you go through some mundane, basic thing that everyone goes through, I've had this hard thing thousands of times, switch the wires, it's all good. Praise God, because every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. It wasn't you, it wasn't the doctor, it was a good thing. Apart from the Lord, we can do nothing. Nothing good happens from Him. And so we want to be careful when we start talking about faith. I wanted to give that caveat early on, because no one here is trying to tell you, hey, just have more faith, man, and everything works out. That's not the point. It's the object of your faith. You have faith in Jesus that He will work all things out, even if you don't see how it works out, even if you don't fully understand it. Where does this guy's motivation come from? Uh, it's interesting to start imagining, like, is he just really motivated by his son's death? Is he just really a believer in Jesus? Um, is, is he, uh, does he have enough faith? Is it authentic? Is that why Jesus rebuked him first? Because it wasn't real faith and then it grew to it? We don't know. And again, I think this is so, when you read the Bible, it's like, man, why did God give it to us this way? Why isn't this answering the questions I want? We want the Bible to tell us so many things that it doesn't tell us. We want the Bible to outline exactly where dinosaurs came from and the exact age of the earth and all these things that the Bible wasn't specifically written to tell you. There might be things in there that help guide you in that, but the Bible wasn't written to tell you exactly how everything will end so that you can find your equation and be like, poof, I knew. See, Israel signed the treaty and now I got, that's not why Bible was written. The Bible is a book of faith. It's a book to look to the Lord. Now, we'll talk about that in a minute because it's first a book of knowledge, but we'll get that down that trail in a minute. But in general, the Bible is given to us so we would look to the Lord, that we would know the Lord, the object of our faith, the source. And so here we sit at the situation and we want to find an equation. And hear me, it's important that you wrestle with this because we all do this. It's not like, like those of us who are lesser, you lesser believers do this. Everyone in this room does it, and by the power of the Spirit, may He convict you of where you do this. We all want this equation, and I know that because you're a Westerner. You're an American. None of you are in here that's like, man, I was, I've been an Easterner my whole life, and this, all this Western stuff is new to me. I don't get it. Like, in general, like we have, have all the different revolutions, the Dust Revolution and, and the Enlightenment. We value so deeply having a 2 plus 2 equals 4. We need an equation. If something's wrong, tell me the path I go. I need a second opinion because that doctor didn't give me the right equation. So I need another equation that matches what I think is right. I need the right equation that I can believe in and then I get my result. And this story gives us none of that. It flies in the face of it. And I thank God for that. And I want to shepherd hard on that moment because I want you to understand that if you have an equation for these things, I hope God wrecks it. Because if you have an equation for this, who's God? You're God. You've become like God. You've decided good from evil. I will never stand up here and preach and not quote that. That's been the problem from the beginning. Evil said, the original lie, the father of lies, he said, hey, did God really say, can you really trust God's word? Nah. 
You could be like God. You could decide good from evil. You could be more. Don't live in your limitations. You could be limitless. Look at our culture. Our culture is all about, you don't have any limitations. Your mind can't tell you who you are. Your body can't tell you who you are. Your mommy, daddy can't tell you who you are. You get to be whoever you want. In a world without limitation, everyone suffers. Everyone suffers. It's a lie. It sounds so sexy. It's killing us all. And this equation mentality, Jesus doesn't even touch it. We don't get to know if this guy was 60-40 faithful. We don't get to know. We, we just get to know that he, he trusted Jesus' word. Well, how much did he trust? Did he doubt on the way home? Was he like, I don't know if my son's really going to be healed. We don't know. All we know is that Jesus is the authority. That's what we get to know. It, now we'll talk about that when we get to doubt. If you walk into a world where you say, if this, then God does that, then therefore, when God doesn't do that, you're left with, I need to do more of this. That is fundamentally opposed to the gospel. That puts you in the seat of controlling God. And not a single one of us in here can control God by our actions. If we could, Jesus was unnecessary. We don't need to die. God doesn't need to love the world and send his son. God just needs you to do more of this so he can do that. It's not how it works. We have a God who loves us enough to send Jesus to die for us, to take on our sin, to take on death, to take on the devil, and to rise again, defeating Satan, sin, and death so that we can have life, eternal life in him, a new creation, a new humanity seeking him. What's the emphasis here? Jesus. Jesus' word. Believing in him and his words. He is truth. It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Verse 51, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them at what hour he began to get better, and they said, yesterday about the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that this was the hour that Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and his whole household. How does his whole household believe unless he told them the whole story? He told them. He told them the truth. He told them that, hey, I trusted in this man, Jesus, who says he's life, who says he's everything, who says he was and is and is to come. I trusted in this man who says he's, he's the Hebrew Messiah. What all the stories are written about. I trusted him, and, and now he's, he's healed. So, so you should trust in him too. Saw this, and they all believed, his whole household. This was now the second sign Jesus did when he came down from Judea to Galilee. And, and we talked really about the progress of these things, how these happen, and, and how each of these characters we've seen, whether it's the John the Baptist, the disciples, through, through Nicodemus, the Jewish leaders, the Samaritan woman, there's this pattern of, do they believe and trust Jesus, or do they push back and say, I... I can't make any step towards belief. I just have to question you. Go back and read it, those of you who've been reading along with us. Go back and read the difference between the people who you can't... You, there's a question mark. Uh, at this point, does Nicodemus believe? I, I don't know. Did, did the Jewish leaders in the temple, do they believe? I don't know. What about the people at the wedding of the Cana that, that didn't specifically say that they... I don't, do they, I don't know. But the people who do believe, it says they trusted in him. They're not, they're not asking questions to have authority over him. Which, by the way, when we talk about doubt, we'll talk about this. Questioning isn't the issue, right? When they ask questions here, when a Jewish leader asks another Jewish leader uh, a question, so rabbi to rabbi, Nicodemus versus Jesus, I did that thing up here a few weeks ago. I was like, hi-ya, hi-ya, hi-ya. My kids loved it. They remind me of it every week. But anyway, it's literally like that. So when they ask a question, it's a step up to get honor, right? It'd be like if you say, man... 
one of these days, last year, I hit a deer with my car, and it flopped over and just messed up the taillight. Someone else was like, okay, well, I hit a deer. Whole windshield flew off. Deer flew in my front seat, bleeding. It was crazy. And then someone else was like, hey, wait a minute, I hit a deer. Thing came alive in my lap. I had to grab a knife. It was crazy. It's like that moment in the Midwest where everyone has to have a better I hit a deer story, right? You can laugh. You do this. Raise your hand if you have a I hit a deer story. Thank you. Come on. Y'all like, I never hit deer. What are you talking about? Get back to the serious Bible stuff. You hit deer. This is what's going on when two rabbis talk to each other. They're trying to step up. They're trying to question. And this is the difference. These Jewish leaders, they're trying to push back. How can this be? How can this be? What they're really saying is, how can you be? How can you? How can what you be saying is true? They're not believing. This makes us have a conversation about faith and knowledge. Knowledge can sometimes be a huge barrier to our faith because we're holding so fast to our knowledge that we don't know what else to do. But I would argue that, that faith and knowledge are essential to each other. And, and philosophically, they have to be. Those of you who are philosoph- uh, philosophy people are like, uh-huh. But they have to be essential to each other. Dallas Willard used to say, the Bible is first a book of knowledge, then a book of faith. And I've given this analogy before, but uh, you, know, you can unpack this different ways. But when Moses threw down his staff to turn into the serpent, he didn't turn it down because God said, just have faith, brother. I gotcha. No, no, no. God said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses knew those people, so he knew God. There was knowledge there. And, and, and as we start wrestling with like this tension of faith and knowledge, we say, hey, Jesus is telling me to believe. But, but I have doubts. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, but I'm trying to understand where this lines up. How much faith did this guy have? What does it mean that you say that I need to look to the object of faith? The idea here is that faith and knowledge are essential to each other. Uh, I want to talk about faith and knowledge for a minute. And, and I, hope, I hope this analogy helps. I was wrestling with this, and I feel like kind of God bud this. We'll see. Um, these are drums. Say drums. Okay, cool. Um, oh, good. I'm going to play a very popular drum song. Get ready for it. Who knows that song? Just yell it out. Close. Wade, what song is that? Dave Matthews, Ants Marching. Anyone? Ha, 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 ha. Come on, people. He wakes up in the... You're like, shut up, what's the point? Okay, so listen, if this... Imagine this whole stage. Don't knock that over. Tom will kill me. Imagine this whole stage is knowledge. This is all knowledge. You could obtain this knowledge. And and we could do the cheesy thing of what percentage would you know? And Tisha would be like, I know this percentage. This is me. I'm Tisha. And I plink a plink. That's what I do. Please don't call her a pianist. It sounds too much like urine. Just call her a plinker, right? So she plinks, right? This is her world. Uh, What did I just say? This is what she knows. Is it possible that if this is all knowledge of the stage, that she's completely missing the rest of the universe because she's so focused here? Now, Go back to our drums, right? If I'm a drummer, I'm absolutely not a drummer. Don't let that really sick Dave Matthews lick fool you. I'm the opposite of a drummer. But if I only know drums, right, and that's it, then I would at least acknowledge, because I've heard music, there are other music instruments besides drums. And if I've never touched a guitar or a piano or, or a keyboard, I would acknowledge, I would have faith, even if I've ever touched them, I've never seen them. I have some understanding, because this can't be all there is. Even when you hit a drum, like... There's like a ringing you hear that's not just the boom. You hear, ooh. You see what I'm saying? There's a tone to the drum. So in your mind, you could imagine there's more here than this is. Now you have knowledge of music. 
but you have faith. There's something more there. Hey, there's something deeper here that I don't know. And let's say as you start wrestling with that, you're like, okay, I get drums. Now I, oh man, I've come across the knowledge of guitars because I understand music. And so now I'm with a guitar. I'm bigger than Nathan. Oh, but now, right? Now you add something. You can clap. It's okay. You add something to it. I whacked myself in the face with that. That was terrible. So you've added something. You're like, hey, hold on. There's not just drums. But now I've experienced the guitar, right? Now, Nathan, do you know everything there is to know about playing guitar and being a guitar musician? Drummer, do you know everything about playing drums and being a drummer? Any drummer? Nope, not in the house. That's a, it's a real problem, isn't it? We need more drummers. If you know drummers, tell them to come to our church. But anyway, so like, um, we're so thankful for Tom when he plays, and it's really great. But it, they would say, no, I don't know everything. But as your knowledge expands, and, and you're saying, there's still a gap of faith. There's still some sort of faith. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Shake your head that you're following this. There's some aspect of faith. Whatever instrument you touch and you add to it, you say... Oh, that's a C chord. I know that on guitar, and I know that on piano too. Okay, that's a C chord, and your knowledge expands, right? But your faith is still there. You're still having faith that there's deeper music. There's more to guitars than what Nathan knows. There's more to drums than what Tom knows. There's more to piano than what Riley and Tisha know, because there's something beyond that. And then you start adding, hold on, who created all this? Where did this come from? There has to be an objective source, an object, a floor, as we've said before, right? Everything sits on top of something. What's the uncaused cause, the thing in which music comes out of? Why is music so beautiful? Why is it so interconnected in ways we can't imagine? Now, all of a sudden, you start understanding, wait, there's a network here of knowledge and faith that go together. I understand every analogy breaks down. Please don't come up to me afterwards and tell me how philosophically this is wrong because you read someone else. In general, every analogy breaks down. But this is a helpful way to say, hold on, faith and knowledge come together. God has given you some knowledge. If you're listening to this right now, even if you're listening to this months later, you come across our podcast or this video, and you're like, well, wait a minute. Maybe, maybe God brought him here. God has given you his word. He's given you the common grace of the beauty of creation, the wonderful taste of food, the glory of coffee. He's given you so much, and he's given you this moment. You're sitting here right now, you're listening from home, you're hearing this podcast later on, and you have this moment to say, King Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. And so all of a sudden you can start connecting the dots and say, hey, there's something bigger here than what I know. There's some percentage beyond the stage. There's something even deeper that connects everything. What if the limitations of your knowledge tend to make you understand everything in ways you don't currently understand them? What if God's trying to speak to you right now and pull you into this? This is the beauty of God using this person's sick son. It's a sad thing that this guy's son is sick and that he's dying. But somehow God worked it out that this guy seeks Jesus and it changes everything, not just for him, but for his whole family. It's a powerful thing. Faith often starts with this idea or an experience or some combination coming from the knowledge that we have and it pulls us beyond ourselves to look to the Lord. As we trust in him, we grow both in faith and knowledge. Those of you who've been Christians for a long time, you would say, I know the Lord better than I used to and my faith in him has grown as well because the more you know the Lord, the more you find out maybe, maybe there's infinite depth there that you don't know and there's more faith that grows and it's beauty that he does both but i hear you saying this let's talk about this some of you are sitting here saying uh, but i have doubts i doubt sometimes maybe you listen to this later on um someone hearing this is like i don't believe in this at all this is malarkey this is nice idea i don't know why i haven't turned it off this far but i don't believe 
I think it's interesting. Well, first of all, Thomas Aquinas, you know, he said, uh, to one who has faith, no explanation is necessary. To one without faith, no explanation is possible. There's a realm in which that's super true. But I also want to deal with what we do with doubt. Uh, Riley, can you come up here? Where's Riley? Anytime someone who comes up here that's not me, if, uh, as the body of Christ, the church, the loving thing to do is to clap for them. Because... Statistically, there's like less than 1% of us in the room that want to be up here. So you're welcome. Hello. Um, Riley, do you know this song? Okay, let's see if I can do it. And then it's like... Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Can you play that? Yeah. Please play it. Both parts at the same time see her hands, but it's literal magic, right? <laughs> Riley, um, if I put in effort and time and work, you being the expert of this song now, aside from uh, Vince, Vince, yeah, I was going to say Lewis Carroll, and it's like, that's the Alice Morland guy, uh, Vince Guaraldi. Aside from him being the expert, you're the expert. If I put in the effort and I, I practice, could I play that song? Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and so you, you have full confidence, you trust if I were to trust your word as the expert, as the one who knows this song well beyond me, then I could learn to play this song. Thank you very much. You can sit down. She did it. Now, so I start practicing this, and I immediately like, wait a minute. I, I play it in a different key than her, right? And I, uh, so I, I, I struggle, right? I, I can't do both parts. Oh, it's a nightmare, right? Can't do it. I haven't been able to do both parts since I was in seventh grade, but I can do both parts individually. Now, I could get in my mind, wait a minute, I'm not a young, thin girl, so maybe I'll never be able to play this song. This doubt creeps in. I don't have really quick, tiny fingers. I uh, don't get insecure about your fingers, Riley. Um, but, like, or I could say, I, I didn't grow up with, with a grand piano in my house or baby grand. I don't know what pianos are. They have, a, they have a cool piano at their house. I didn't grow up with that, right? Or I could say, oh, I didn't grow up in Jeff City. I could find all these reasons to doubt. And so what I would be doing is I'd be saying, hey, the knowledge that I'm putting above the expert, the person who knows, I'd be able to say, no, I've, I've been able to figure out that this is wrong. Despite what she said, she's the expert. I would say, ah, I probably can't do that. So I'm going to give it up. In fact, I'm going to burn the piano. I'm just, I'm going to crawl into a hole. I might even send Riley a mean letter. I might make fun of her on social media. Idiots. All those idiots who believe Riley can play piano. They have it. She actually has two left hands. Did you know that? Right? Whatever. Like, that might, you can unpack that analogy as much as you want in how we use social media and get angry with God. But there's this tension where all of a sudden, because of my doubt, then I've made her the enemy, when all I really needed to do was trust her as the expert. Why would I have any reason to think otherwise because she's the expert? She knows how to play. You get, did you guys hear play that song? Right? She clearly knows how to play it. So why would I doubt that? Let's look at scripture when we're wrestling with doubt. You have doubting Thomas in John 20, 29. So Jesus appears before his disciples and uh, John, or uh, doubting Thomas, he hadn't seen yet. And he says to the disciples who had seen Jesus, hey, unless I can put my finger in his holes, right, in his side, in his hands, I'm not going to believe. And then Jesus appears and says, peace be with you. Because when you appear through locked doors, you have to start with peace be with you. Because otherwise everyone's like, intruder, ghost, this is terrifying. And Jesus wants them, no, no, no. I'm fully human, I'm flesh. Peace be with you. And then you have this. 
Jesus says, hey, you know, he has him. Touch him. As if Jesus was in on the conversation already, right? And Thomas believes, and Jesus says this in 2029. Have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And then right after that, we get these verses we've already read in John, which say what? He gave these signs so that we would believe in Jesus as the Messiah and through believing have life in his name. All of a sudden, Thomas's doubts get usurped by the object of his faith because Jesus doesn't even want to... Jesus doesn't say, you doubting Thomas, you're so stupid. Why didn't you believe like the rest of you? In fact, you are just barely above Judas. Get out of here. We don't get none of that. Jesus just moves right on to saying, hey... This is what happens with belief. And then he moves right on to continuing with the disciples, continuing to go with John's message. Look at uh, the next one. There's this father of this demon-possessed man in Mark 9. It's my favorite story in Scripture. We don't have time to unpack it. But this guy comes to Jesus and says, My son is demon-possessed, and he's throwing himself into fire, and there's all this junk going on. Uh, Can you heal him? If you can heal him, please heal him. And Jesus is like, If I can... All things are possible for those who believe. Don't don't give me this if I can't. Jesus kind of pushes back. And the guy says this. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Takes his unbelief to Jesus. And then Jesus says, nope, you're 60-40. I'm going to wait till you're fully there. No, Jesus heals his son. That's what happens. He says, I believe, but I don't believe. That's literally what he says. I believe and I don't believe. It's kind of a mixture and I'm really struggling here. Still heals his son. Doubting Thomas. Doubts. Jesus still moves on. This is the weirdest one. God include this. So we've got these verses up here on our wall. The verses right before this are so fascinating. Look at this. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. This is Matthew 28, 16. They went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. He directed them because he's resurrected. Catch this scene. Jesus died brutally. They all saw it. They were so afraid Rome was going to kill them. They all scattered except for some women who stayed with Jesus. Uh, and, and I think uh, one of John and the brothers. Anyway, so they're all scattered. And then they come back. Jesus appears. He's alive. He appeared to them. Flesh and blood. He's alive, resurrected, made new. And then he tells them to go meet on this mountain. Listen to this verse. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. They, all of them worship him. What's the next lines? Read it. But some doubted. What a ridiculous three words, Matthew, to throw in there. We would all be great without those words because it sounds so happy clappy. Yeah, go Jesus. Him and his boys got together. He's about to ascend and now everyone's happy and worshiping. It sounds so great. We're like, yes, this is what we want. Big faith, big moment. Get up in the clouds, Jesus, because you ascending. This is what's up. It's a big deal. But some doubted. Ugh. Kills it. Kills it. What does Jesus do? Does he say, oh, doubters, please go over here, and the 11 that are worshiping truly come over here. That's what we want, because we want the equation. We want to know. You want to know that I have been faithful enough today. I've done enough today. I've worked it out, and I know so I can show everyone else, look at my faith. I've had these things that prove it. I've got it figured out. But some doubt it. And what does Jesus say? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. Those of you who are doubting, go and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always, even until the end of time. Jesus completely steps over their doubts. They're worshiping him and doubting. And he completely steps over them and still commissions them. 
hear me, those of you who have doubts. I don't, uh, you know, maybe the music analogy helped you. Maybe you hate philosophy and that was annoying. Maybe getting Riley up here was really helpful for you. Here's what you need to understand about your doubts. The Lord has spoken. Jesus is true. Jesus is everything. He's not pushing you out or pushing you aside because of your doubts. Jesus is welcoming them. He's saying, come to me, weary, heavy laden, come to me with your doubts, because I'm going to tell you the same thing I'm telling the people who aren't doubting. All authority has been given to me. Trust in me. It is not about the strength of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. Jesus is the emphasis. So what is the standard of faith? How do we know? We vaguely get it in this picture. The man believed the word Jesus spoke. That's the phrase. John 4:50. Memorize it. The man believed that the words Jesus spoke, and it ripples beyond him. What circumstances in your life are you struggling to believe the Lord's at work? Is there some sort of equation you're trying to figure out with the next surgery, with what the doctors say, with, with what's going on with your kids, with work, with this relationship that's a big question mark? What, what's the equation? You're like, I just can't see God working this out. This addiction keeps coming back. What is it? Does this story encourage you? The lack of measurement of faith that we get, the lack of answers we get, all we get is that Jesus is Lord, that we believe in him, that we believe in his word. And so all of a sudden, you get to take a step back from these doubts, from these questions, from these struggles, and say, I still lay those before the Lord. It's not blind, ignorant faith, because faith and knowledge have an essential relationship to each other. God's given you the knowledge right now that he welcomes your doubts, that he's still with you, that he says, all authority has been given to me. Do you doubt what's going to happen in your operation coming up? Do you doubt what's going to happen in the brokenness of your family? Do you doubt what's going to happen in your singleness, your loneliness, your mental illness? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. So go, live as his disciple, make other disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And remember that he's with you always. You don't know what the Lord can do through his Holy Spirit working in you as you believe and share. I want to remind you real quick of how the Holy Spirit works in you in this. A few verses. We're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but John is going to unpack later this idea of the Holy Spirit rippling. The Spirit and truth that we've seen. Water and Spirit we've seen. John 6, 63. It's uh, probably my favorite verse in Scripture. I say it to myself a lot. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help. The words I've spoken to you are Spirit and life. Later on in John 14, Jesus will say, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, my Father will send in my name. You've got to believe in Jesus' name. Well, who's the Helper? His Spirit's going to come to help you believe in His name. Isn't that powerful? You can't even believe in His name on your own. The Spirit helps you. The Helper, the Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and He'll bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. Now all of a sudden, when you're supposed to go and observe everything He's commanded and teach everything He's commanded, it's like, I can't do that. I'm not, a, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a preacher, I haven't studied theology, I can't... Mm. It's the Spirit who gives life. It's the Spirit who reminds you, who tells you who Jesus is. Ephesians 1, 13, 14, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You heard the word of truth, the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel of salvation? What's he referring to here? He's referring to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The only hope that you and I have. The object of our faith. The object of our belief. 
thwarted with doubt, struggling, 60-40, wherever it's at, 50-50, I believe, help my unbelief. We're worshiping, but some doubt it, wherever you're at. This is the gospel, that Jesus died for your sin to make all things right in accordance with Scripture. He was risen again to defeat Satan, sin, and death so that we could have a new humanity, a new creation, so that all could be made right. Tim Keller puts it this way. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believed. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. What do we do with all this? How do we practice faith? As we come to close here, I want to give you a couple ways to practice this, uh, a couple ways to wrestle with it. Um, Pray. It's a simple uh, prayer is communication between the creator and the creation. It's an intentional interaction with the one who created all. Prayer is simply talking to God. Talk to the Lord. And maybe for you, you don't even know what to say, then say the Lord's prayer because Jesus told you to pray this way. But start by praying. And I think it's interesting that this guy, you see him coming to Jesus specifically, intently, passionately, desperately. He comes to Jesus with his plea several times. He comes back and says, hey, this is what's happening. Jesus responds. He said, hey, but come, pray. I think this guy teaches us to pray in the way. In fact, there's a guy in our church uh, who said this to me once, and it really stuck out to me. He said, if you don't pray specifically, how will you know if the Lord answers? If you don't pray specifically, how will you know if the Lord answers? God, I pray you'd be with all the sick people out there. God, I I pray that that this situation brings you glory. Uh, Those are fine prayers. I'm not squashing your prayers. I'm just saying, like, why don't you pray in the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit? The worst case scenario is you weren't fully in the knowledge of God's will and God does something different. Praise God. Tim Keller also said, I feel like I'm quoting Tim Keller a lot. This is in my notes, but he would say, God answers, his, God answers your prayers exactly how you would if you knew everything he knew. God answers your prayers exactly how you would if you knew everything he knew. See, God who's infinite and beyond sometimes doesn't answer. Even Garth Brooks knows to thank God for unanswered prayers. Come on. Like, it's a big deal. But Pray. Pray intently, pray passionately, make a list. In your seats, you have this card. You can fold it in half, you can whatever. It's got the same highlights that I always use. You look at this and you think, this clearly wasn't firehouse designed. This is David Newton in the office this morning. And I understand that. And I'm sorry that it's probably not, not up, up to maybe your standard of design, but, you know, um, sometimes you're out of time. This is good, though. Here's what I want you to do with this. I want you to take these verses... And I want you to say, I'm going to hold on to truth. I put three verses here that mean a lot to me. I'm going to say something about Psalms 90:14 for a minute. This verse, Psalms 90:14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that, he may, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Brennan Manning used to say, if you believe that the Lord actually loved you, it would change everything about you. Everything about you. And this verse challenges me because every morning... I wake up with a list of things I need to do, a list of doubts, a list of insecurities, all the ways that I haven't done what I ought to do the day before. And every night I go to bed with the same list of insecurities and doubts and struggles. But this verse slaps all that in the face. It says, God, satisfy me with your steadfast love. May your love be enough. I read this verse every morning nowadays, and I would encourage you to read it and hold on to that truth. Take the Lord at his word. John 6, 63, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help. Your flesh ain't getting you nowhere. 
You're trying so hard to get past your addiction. You're trying so hard to fix your marriage. That's great. There are things you need to do, sure. But the flesh is ultimately of no help because it's the spirit that gives life. If you want to see life in your marriage and your parenting, you have to look to the Lord. You need his spirit. Enough said. That's it. This verse reminds me of that. Nothing about my addiction changed until I trusted in the Lord. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help. The words I've spoken to your spirit and life. And then uh, I put John 20, 30 through 31 on there. Take this card this week. Take some time in the morning. Write some specific prayers down. Don't get trapped in the doubt of, what if God doesn't answer? What if I don't get what I want? See, now you're stepping in the equations. If I do this, then this. This isn't a magic puzzle for you to put together so that you control God. This is to trust that he's the object of your faith. That maybe you don't know fully how to drum. You think you do, but you don't. And if you just drum all the time by yourself, then you're never going to be in a good band because no band is just drummers. I know drum lines are awesome, but full bands and full music that last the test of time has so many instruments in it. So you have to stop and say, hold on, maybe my limitation here needs to be checked. And I need to say, God, I really want you to heal this disease. And I'm praying specifically and I hope to see it. But I also, my trust is not just that you'll heal my disease. My trust is in you. My trust is that you're king, that all authority in heaven has been given to you. And whatever you decide to do, it'll be for your glory and my joy, our good, as scripture would tell us. This card's for you this week. The last thing I'll say to you as we close, believe and trust together. Share this with someone this week. Send someone who's not here one of these verses. Tell someone in this room your specific prayers that they may pray with you. One of the, the first thing God said wasn't good in Scripture. You know what it was? It's not good that man should be alone. And then even in Christ, when things are made new, he says, it's not one individual, 1 Corinthians 12. It's many members. We're all together. Paul goes to great lengths to say, you guys are all connected. You're one body. Fight for the unity. Preserve the unity because you're one. Quit pretending you're not. Watch our culture. Watch the church. Watch people around you and how evil severs this. You're all alone. No one gets you. You're special. No one can understand your pain. You're alone. Pulls you away. Push back on that. Because the truth of Scripture is it's not good that man can be alone. It's not good that humans are alone. It's, it's you are meant to be with other people. This is why all through Scripture you see Israel, disciples, the church. We follow Christ together. You don't know what the Lord through His Holy Spirit in you will do through believing and sharing. So church, go out and share what God's done to you. Share the testimony of what he's done, ways you've seen him heal, move, ways he's spoken to you today. Because there are all sorts of people out there, households, people out in different cities, different situations that, that we want to push aside. They're not going to hear Jesus if you don't go and tell them. This is what God's been doing from the beginning. He says, go. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke. Do you believe in Jesus and his word to you? You trust in Jesus? Do you give him your doubts? We're about to sing a song, This I Believe. And as you stand, I want you to remember this. This is the church declaring, this is what we believe. And we're not just singing it to the Lord. Praise God that we are, but we're also singing it to each other. I believe in the saints' communion. I believe in your holy church. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe. Really what we're saying is we believe. What do you believe? If you need to talk to someone, if you need to pray, if you need to give your life to Jesus, I'll be down here to pray with you. Let's sing together. Let's worship.